Well, good morning from me. Uh, for those of you who I don't know, my name's Chris Brockway. I have the real joy of being involved in the leadership of the church here at CBC. The real joy and privilege this morning, too, of uh, opening up God's Word for us in a moment as we continue in our sermon series. Uh, some of you I can see from the, the online chat this morning have had some difficulty uh, catching up with us to our live content. Uh, just so you know, if the refresh button doesn't work, which often is pressing F5 or the little circle arrow uh, that's on your browser, you can click a button in the bottom left-hand corner of the YouTube feed or the video that you watch that says live. And if you press the live button, it catches you up to our live content rather than watching that which has been streamed uh, previously. So the live button is worth remembering. And if nothing else works, shut down the online church platform, reopen it, and you should enter in at the position of the live uh, worship that we're currently streaming. So sorry if you've had difficulties with that this morning. It's all about the speed of the refresh at your end. I'm afraid there's nothing we can do about that from here. Well, this coming weekend is very exciting because we've reached a really significant point in the journey of Kay Bolton, but too the journey for us as a church, as we will see Kay at the weekend inducted into her new role as a fully accredited minister here at Christchurch Baptist Church, but too as we see her ordained or to be revved up, perhaps we might say, after she's been through all of the training uh, as a minister in training, she becomes a fully accredited minister. I really hope you'll be able to join us at the weekend. Uh, We're going to be doing everything on Zoom because Kay was really keen to try and be able to see as many people's faces as possible. We've already got 200 people signed up to turn up at this event, so it's going to be great fun. So please do join us if you can. If you're not a user of Zoom... We are going to be live streaming the content to the place where you're watching now as well. So you can always catch up with what's going on there. But please join us at the weekend if you can. Saturday at 11 o'clock, our regional minister, Colin Norris, will be joining me to lead that service with Kay. We're really looking forward to it. So into our sermon this morning, we've landed on our penultimate week in our journey through the letter uh, to the Colossians. And next weekend, we're going to think in our final sermon about teamwork made simple as we wrap up the series. But this morning, our focus, as Hannah has already said, is evangelism made simple. And that's the theme that very much jumps off the pages of our scripture this morning from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Let's read that together. If you've got a Bible, please do open up the pages, just a few verses. If you haven't got a Bible, you can always click the Bible link uh, on our online church platform and look up the text. Colossians chapter 4, reading from verse 2, says this, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and being thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace and seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. Well, I wonder if you've ever been to a flea market. Do you know, it's not something I've ever wanted to do. Why on earth would I want to go to a place and run the risk of coming away itching and covered in bites, which should only ever be given to cats and dogs? But I discovered something this week in our family devotions book, and it turns out I might well have misunderstood what a flea market is actually all about. Apparently, it's not a dirty activity at all, which attracts fleas and other bugs. 
The word flee was in fact supposed to be a different word, and we've simply mispronounced it over time. The story goes that it started in New York at one of the first outdoor markets, which was called the Valley Market. And a sign was made, of course, to help people find the location, but the sign turned out to be too small for the whole name to fit on it. So the painter decided he would abbreviate the name of the market and simply wrote it as V-L-E dot market. Well, people started calling it the Lee Market because that's what the sign seemed to spell out. The words Vlee Market were then repeated so often and so many times that it began to sound like Flea Market. So now, so the story goes, every single open-air market around the world is called a flea market, or at least in the West. I wonder, maybe you've been to one. I wonder if you did indeed come away covered in bites. Well, I know what you're thinking. Well, thanks for the history lesson, Chris. That's really interesting, but so what? Well, my point is this, and it's the perfect segue into our theme this morning. It's funny, isn't it, how even our smallest and our most casual actions can have such a big impact in the world. They can even change eternity. The person who made the sign VLE market probably never even thought about what he or she had written. They would certainly have had no idea that years later, the term for outdoor markets would still be based on the abbreviation of their simple sign. My point, you never know when things that seem unimportant will turn out to be important. If you watched the news yesterday, you will have noticed on there that Captain Sir Tom Moore's funeral happened yesterday. And of course, this was true in his life, wasn't it? He'd hoped to raise a few pounds for the NHS. And at the grand old age of 100, he became a national hero and a celebrity three million amazing pounds later. Sometimes small, even unimportant things, even our words and even our actions can have eternal consequences. And that's especially true when it comes to our theme today about how we tell and how we show Jesus to other people, how we speak about God and how we speak about his word, sometimes called evangelism. And what I really hope we'll discover today is that evangelism doesn't need to be the fear-inducing word that many of us have made it to be. But in fact, evangelism really is as simple as one, two, three. Pray, walk, talk. So far in Colossians chapter one, two, and three, Paul has been busy speaking about the importance of loving God. He's been speaking about the importance of who Jesus is and worshiping him for who he is. He's been speaking about our desire to strive to love other people. He's spoken a lot about the need to kill sin in our lives. And as we get to our text today, at the beginning of chapter four, Paul's evangelistic heart is very much on display. In our text, Paul's very simple prayer is that believers would know greater boldness to proclaim this Jesus who he's been speaking about for the last three chapters. His prayer is that others would pray for him to speak with boldness, even as he was there in chains, in his prison cell, all chained up. And it's from that prison cell, with his desire to share with those who are around him, that Paul shares three really simple but important principles that this morning I'm going to explain very briefly before showing you a video example of a situation where evangelism is happening not a million miles away from Christchurch, which I think is just 
the most wonderful application of Paul's simple one, two, three. Pray, walk, talk principles. So firstly, in verses two to four, Paul's challenge is for followers of Jesus Christ to commit to prayer. I think it's very significant that more than half of this text today is about prayer. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that we should talk to God before we even consider talking to other people. Now, I think there's a sense here that Paul is being very honest here about how difficult prayer can be. I wonder if you might say a bit more on this theme if we were able to engage in a dialogue with him. And I think Paul is affirming how difficult prayer can be because he speaks about our prayer needing to be devoted and steadfast and full of thanksgiving. Well, at least two of those words, it seems to me, devoted and steadfast, would seem to mean that prayer takes discipline, that prayer takes concentration, that it takes concerted effort. I'm guessing you know that to be true in your life as I do in mine. But I wonder why does Paul speak first about our evangelism beginning with prayer? Surely evangelism, most of us would say, is actually about us talking to other people. It's not about talking to God. Why does Paul start there? Because prayer is essential for success in sharing and showing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The most important human factor in evangelism is prayer. The most important human factor in evangelism is prayer. And I think it's essential because two things happen when we pray. The first thing that happens is that God prepares us to show the gospel first in actions and then in words. But secondly, God also prepares others through our prayers to receive the gospel message that we will share with them. Spending time in the company of God before we start talking to others does make a difference and it makes perfect sense. You see, when we pray, when we spend time in the company of our God, there's a sense in which Christ rubs off on us and people are drawn to Christ through us because they can start to see Christ in us. I guess it's a little bit like this. I don't know if you've ever spent time in the company of another person and then you've walked away from that interaction with their fragrance lingering on you. Well, of course, this can be both good and bad, can't it? Perhaps it was their perfume or their aftershave. Maybe that was a nice smell. Nowadays, maybe you walk away with the smell of their hand sanitizer on you. I remember when I used to work in a homeless project uh, in my previous church, I would often walk away away with this kind of slightly fausty smell, uh, having spent time with some of the guys who came to be with us. Perhaps in another situation, a slightly more negative smell might be the smell of somebody's tobacco or even the whiff of their pet. Every day when our children come home from school, they have a very particular smell about them that they definitely don't have at the weekends. I wonder if you know the smell I mean. It's kind of a cocktail of blocked up drain and rotting mouse that's masked by the faint odour of bleach. And the same thing happens to us. Not that we smell of blocked drain and rotting mouse, but actually the same thing happens to us when we pray. We come away from prayer smelling of the fragrance of Jesus Christ. Paul says exactly that in another place in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Listen to what he says. He says, but thanks be to God who uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one with the aroma that brings death, to the other we're an aroma that brings life. I love the way the message version puts those verses. It says, through us, he brings the knowledge of Christ. Everywhere we go, people breathe in the exquisite fragrance. Because of Christ, we give off a sweet scent rising to God, which is recognized by those who are on the way to salvation. So what can we say in response to all that? So in prayer, before we're sent, before we go, before we're sent, God shows us, uh, prepares us to show the gospel by our scent. See what I did there? Before we're sent, God says to us, spend time in my company and I'll give you the scent of Jesus. But two, in prayer, God prepares others to receive the gospel. And that's why I think that Paul is asking the Colossians to pray for him and his companions. Paul's great desire, we see this in verse 3, is that he would have the opportunity to speak to those around him, fellow prisoners, maybe even those who were guarding him. He says, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. There's a sense here for me that Paul has worked out that people's hearts aren't yet, yet ready, received. So he says, uh, ready to receive. So he says to the Colossians, pray that my jailer's heart might be open to hear about Jesus. You see, our prayers achieve for us what our human ingenuity absolutely cannot. Our prayers start to open a door for the word of God and it prepares others to receive what we have to share. Jesus said, didn't he, in John chapter 6, verse 44, no one, no one can come to the Father unless uh, he who sent me draws them. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So what can we say? Well, the Father, um, you can't lead somebody into a relationship with Jesus unless our Father God himself is preparing that person. Nothing we can say or do will make a difference. We'll be close, faced with a closed door, not an open door. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that quite a relief. If God is drawing a person to himself, then we don't need to be the next Billy Graham in order to persuade them. But it simply takes discernment to know what to say and when to say it. What better place to receive that kind of discernment than in the place of prayer, where the fragrance of Jesus rubs off on us? Prayer is how we participate in the preparation of two hearts. Firstly, ours, and secondly, the person that God is calling us to share with. So first of all, before we even start talking about Jesus and proclaiming the gospel, Paul seems to suggest here that we need to start talking to God. We need to pray. Point one. But then Paul goes on, after we've talked to God, before we start talking the talk, there's another step. We need to make sure that we're first walking the walk with Jesus, which is his second principle in our text. Pray first and then walk. Why? Because there's nothing worse than a person who talks an awful lot about Jesus, but actually lives a life which is not a great advert for him. Much of the time in our evangelistic efforts, what we don't say actually has a much greater impact than what we do say. You may well have heard somebody say to you something like, show me, don't tell me. In other words, let your life reflect who Jesus is as well as your words and sometimes more importantly than the words will speak. 
Now, if you're a follower of the the Christian press, you'll know that over recent weeks and months, a very well-known evangelist with a huge platform and had somebody who's had massive influence has recently created a huge stumbling block because he wasn't living a life with Christ, which he was commending to others. It would appear that this individual was talking the talk, but a lot of the time he wasn't walking the walk. And the outcome of that is so much destruction and so much fallout. It's been such negative press for the good news of Jesus. It's always very interesting to me as I read through the gospel narrative that Jesus' strongest criticism for people who were living sin-filled, ungodly lives was rarely aimed at people who didn't already profess faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, much of the time, Jesus would speak to those who didn't have a faith with incredible words of grace. But to those who were religious types, those who said, do you know what, I'm following God, he had his strongest criticism. Think for a moment about some of his words to the Pharisees. Jesus said, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. And then he says things like they are are whitewashed tombs. Not easy to say. say. They're blind guides. They're self-indulgent fools. They're snakes. And perhaps the harshest word that Jesus used of the religious leaders is that they were hypocrites. Authenticity seems so important, doesn't it? Authenticity is making sure that the things we say match up to the things that we do. You see, if our lives with Jesus are not authentic, then people will see right through them and will end up being a negative, not a positive witness. And that's why Paul says in verse 5, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity that comes your way. Or as some translations have it, it says, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside. Walk in the wisdom of God so that others can see it. We need to live lives that show that Jesus really matters to us. Now, of course, there's a caveat to all this, and there would be, is that we need to recognize that this side of heaven, this side of eternity spent in the presence of God, none of us will perfectly achieve this kind of life where we perfectly are a witness for Jesus. And we need to know God's grace. And in that receipt of God's grace, somehow by this mystery that Paul speaks of, he allows us to be a witness for him. So we don't need to be perfect, but we should at least know uh, the areas of our lives that aren't quite right and seek to deal with them when that's revealed to us. Christ needs to be seen in us and his fragrance needs to be smelt on us. Titus chapter 2 verses 7 to 8 say this, In everything set an example by doing what's good. In your teaching show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. In a very similar way, Peter reinforces this message in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 11 to 12. Dear friends, I urge you, this is really important, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And then he says, live such good lives among the pagans that they accuse you of doing wrong. They may see your good deeds and glorify God uh, on the day when he visits, though they accuse you of doing wrong. 
In a sense, that's Peter's way of saying to us, look, would you walk the walk before you start talking the talk? And it's talking the talk, which is uh, Paul's third principle of simple evangelism. Pray, one. Walk, two. Talk, three. Well, maybe until today, you thought that the perfect match, one with another, was salt and pepper. But no, says Paul, it's not salt and pepper, it's salt and grace, which is the perfect combination. He says, make sure that your speech is flavored with both, with salt and with grace. Verse six, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everybody who asks you about the hope that you have. You see, your life and my life can support or it can undermine our message. But at the end of the day, it's the spoken word, it's the spoken message of Christ's life using our lips, not only the example of our lives, that will bring people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And maybe that makes sense, doesn't it? Paul says, pray first, and then would you make sure you're walking the walk? Think about your actions because they're really important. But then he goes on to speak about the words that we speak because it's that package together that will lead people into relationship with Jesus. Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, faith comes from what is heard, but what is heard comes through the word of Christ. Paul, again, just driving home the point that our actions are not enough. Our actions need to be accompanied by our words. There's a transformative power in the words that we speak about Jesus. And oftentimes the words that we speak will only be small words, almost sometimes throwaway comments, seemingly insignificant things. But God can do great things with them. I can think of so many occasions in my own life and my own ministry where people years after I've had a conversation with them will say, do you know what? You said something on that day that was so powerful and so significant. It made me think about my relationship with Jesus. I don't even remember the things I said. And oftentimes I'm not sure I'd even consciously thought them through. Oftentimes there were throwaway comments, but God can use the seemingly unimportant things to do very important things that can change a person's eternity. So perhaps it's no wonder that Paul says, let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt, salt and grace, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Well, as Paul uses the word salt here, he's probably referring to the way that salt adds flavor to food and salt makes food more palatable. When we share our faith, we need to do so in such a way that it's pleasing and that it's palatable. Now, the reality is, is some people will be offended by the message of Jesus Christ. Some people don't like being given the message very bluntly or in more subtle ways that they're sinners and they've come short of the glory of God and they need to do something to change that situation. The message of Jesus in many ways runs against the culture that we live in. Sometimes people will be offended by the message of Jesus but Paul is saying here, they should never be offended by the way we present it. If we present the message with salt and we present the message with grace, then people should never be offended by the messenger, even if they're offended by the message. Our message should be pleasing and palatable, gracious and always seasoned with salt. In the end, whenever we share our faith, we should share it with dignity and we should treat other people with respect. 
In the words of 1 Peter 3.15 that I alluded to a moment ago, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But he says there, do it with gentleness and do it with respect. Gentleness and respect, salt and grace, such an important combination. This is such simple evangelism. It's not the difficult thing that sometimes we make it to be. We pray, we walk, we talk. The one, two, three of evangelism. And one, two, and three are all equally important. And we shouldn't miss any of those out. In a sense, what Paul is talking about here is something we could call incarnational evangelism. It's about sharing our faith naturally within the space or the community that God has planted us, within the family or the friendship group that God has planted us. Paul is speaking here about the community that he had at the time. It was a prison community. And Paul says, Lord, would you use me as an evangelistic tool incarnationally here in this place where I find myself? And I just wonder for us today, how would God challenge us to share our faith incarnationally in the place where he has planted us? Three principles, so important. We should pray, we should walk, but we mustn't forget too. There are times when we need to talk and speak about the good news. Well, I promised at the beginning of this message, which I've kept deliberately shorter, believe it or not, this morning, that we would watch a video clip, which is all about a couple of people who have moved into a community with a desire to live incarnationally in order that there would be evangelistic results. You'll see in this video, I think, that they live out all three of these principles that Paul speaks of. They pray, they walk, and they talk. The couple in the story are Helen and Nick Baker. Uh, They came from a church which is up in Bicester, or they're part of a church which was in Bicester, Orchard Baptist Church, who have moved into the community that you're going to see spoken about in the video at the moment. This is also a home mission project. And if you don't know about home mission, that will be explained a bit in the video as well. Enjoy watching this and look out for the principles. They pray, they walk, and they don't forget the need sometimes to talk.